This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 97. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lon Romayasha, and I am quite depressed because summer is over, and now we have entered fall. You know why they call it fall? It's because your mood falls after the elation of summer. <laughs> but I am getting my excitement back up, revving it back up, because we have lots of exciting news to talk about. We're wrapping up all the news out of summer on this week's episode, and doubly exciting. We've got two new jump starts to talk about, and I think we're going to have some fun conversations about these new fun series. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, in particular, we are going to be talking about uh, Mission Yozakura Family uh, from Hitsuji Gondaira, as well as uh, Mitama Security Spirit Busters from Surun Hatomune. Um, so... Basically, stay tuned for the end of the show on that, but uh, we do have some news to cover, and I think starting off, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some awards here, in particular the Eisner Awards. Uh, Lum, please take it away. Yes, we've long needed to report on the exciting Eisner Award winners from this year's uh, show. And yes, the big one is, of course, Akiko Higashimura's Tokyo Tarareba Girls won this year's Best U.S. Edition of International Material Asia Award. Of course, credit to Stephen LeCoy, who translates the manga, and uh, Tokyo Tower Rebel Girls won competing against My Beijing Forces of Everything Wonder, Sutomo Nihei's Abara, Iriosana's Dead Dead Demons of Destruction, and Afro's Layback Camp. So it had some wordy competition, but Akiko Hashimura came out on top, and Twitter was a buzz with delight. I was delighted. So happy to see Higashimura receive this award and accolade. Very humorously, I believe Jocelyn Allen recently uh, tweeted uh, some excerpts from one of Higashimura's podcasts, because she has a podcast where she was reacting to winning the Eisner Award, and she was stunned because she had never heard of the award, and she was really shocked that uh, her work won the award when big hits like Naruto and Dragon Ball never have. And it was kind of adorable to see her react to that, but she definitely deserves it for all the great manga she's drawn, and Tokyo Tower Rebel Girls is a fantastic series, so I was really excited to see that win the award. But... Also, a great winner was Junji Ito's Frankenstein, the specifically the Frankenstein story from the Junji Ito story collection titled Frankenstein. And that also happens to be translated by Jocelyn Allen. And yeah, that won Best Adaptation from Another Medium. So that was another wordy winner. But also Dark Horse's release of Yoshitaka Amino, the illustrated biography beyond the fantasy by Florent Georges and translated by Laura DuPont and Annie Gwilin was nominated uh, in the Best Comics-Related Book category. But uh, it didn't win it, but it was still cool that it was nominated. But yeah, so uh, we had two great winners this year in Tokyo Tower Rebel Girls and Junji Ito's Frankenstein. So really, really happy to see some great manga wins a great awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also cool to always see is how manga is doing in sales in North America. And to check up on that, we've got this month's book scan list, don't we, Colton? Yeah, so um, I was really trying not to laugh while you were talking about the Eisner Awards because I was because I was quickly scanning the book scan list. And 
wow, um, there's not a lot of variety in this one. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm just going to get this out of the way. So I, I counted up all the volumes of My Hero Academia that are on this list. And keep in mind, this is the top 20 of the BookScan uh, adult graphic novels list uh, for July in particular. And out of the 20 graphic novels on this list listed, literally half of it is My Hero Academia. Uh, specifically, nine volumes of the original My Hero Academia plus uh, volume five of uh, My Hero Academia Vigilantes. Uh, just to go down the list real quick, uh, volume one comes in at number six with volume two coming in at number seven. Volume 19 comes in at number eight. Uh, volume three comes in at number nine. Volume four at number 12. Uh, Vigilantes volume five coming in at number 14. Volume 16 comes in at number 15. Volume 18 comes in at number 16. Volume 17 comes in at number 17. <laughs> and uh, Volume 5 comes in at number 18. So My Hero Academia once again dominates the list. Really nothing new to say there except holy shit. Where's MHA's Eisner? You think that a series as beloved, as popular in the zeitgeist would also win accolades? Perhaps one day in the future. But... Regardless, MHA continues to be one of the most dominant comics on the market right now, and certainly the fact that it occupies half the spots in the top 20 for adult graphic novels is something to take note of. Someday. Um, but just to go over uh, the, the other, I don't know, 10-15% of this list, I don't know how math works sometimes, um... <laughs> So, uh, just going from the top, at number four, we have uh, Akira Himikawa's The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess Volume 5. Again, obviously, Legend of Zelda, uh, especially its manga adaptations, are always bestsellers, so that's really no surprise. Um, at number five, we have Volume 2 of the Deluxe Edition of Kentaro Miura's Berserk. Uh, volume 1 of the Deluxe Edition also ranks at number 20, so... Good, good to see Berserk selling well. It seems like those deluxe editions are doing well for Dark Horse. So I'm happy to hear that. And uh, last but not least, um, I'm really happy about number 13 on this list, considering uh, Bomber and I on one of the last episodes were kind of talking about how long it would stay on the list. And it looks like uh, Komi Can't Communicate from Tomohito Oda has made another appearance, uh, volume one in particular, again, at number 13 on this list. Which, again, that's really good to see. Um, Comey Can't Communicate, as we discussed before, is a series that definitely, I'm sure, hits home for a lot of people. So I could see how this series in particular would rank so high on the list, or I guess rank on the list at all. Because, like, if you haven't listened to our episode about Comey Can't Communicate, it's a really good comic and you should read it. So. Mm-hmm. Komi can't communicate, but she sure can sell. <laughs> it's really impressive to see Komi can't communicate so high, continue a two-month streak in the book scan without having an anime, without having any sort of official release prior to the first volume being published in June. So that just speaks to the strength of the word of mouth, the strength to the cult popularity it had received over the years. And I'm really glad to see a Shonen Sunday title sell so well, and I'm hoping that these sales continue to be strong with future volumes going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm definitely curious to see if Volume 2 uh, mixed on the list, and if maybe Volume 1 stays. Uh, it would be interesting to see. But 
there's really not much else to say about this list. Um, again, My Hero Academia is constantly dominating along with the, the, the three or four other series that still do pretty well uh, month to month. So there's that. Uh, but I think we should move on to some serialization news. That we will. And first, we'll start off with an announcement of a series that will be ending within the month. Bloom into You is ending on September 27th. And so I recently caught up with the series English release, the six volumes that are currently published by Seven Seas, and I really enjoyed it. And definitely at the end of the six volume felt like the series was going to be ending into a climactic sort of mode. So I think it was already previously revealed that the eighth volume of Bloom Into You would be the final volume, and that will come out in November. So I'm very curious to see how Bloom Into You will end. I really enjoy the series. And yeah, so if you are looking forward to the ending, it's coming up in just a few weeks. All right, but uh, we have some Shona Jump stuff to talk about here. And um, first things first, it's um, it's not technically serialization news, but it it's sort of related. Um, so it looks like with this latest update to uh, the Shonen Jump Plus app, or I should say the, the Shonen Jump digital app over in Japan, um, Shonen Jump Plus uh, in particular it now has a age restriction. Um, so basically, if you are under the age of 17, you will not have access to the titles published on that part of the app, which is uh, pretty interesting here. Uh, it looks like this change took place on august 13th and uh yeah i mean i mean i guess it's not too super surprising because they they do have some somewhat like risque titles on there such as world's end harem and uh that's where uh stuff like kentaro yabuki's uh darling in the franks manga run, ran and stuff like that so we also can't forget stuff like hina change and dear sachan which uh you know i i can't imagine a lot of 12 year olds reading that you know <laughs> Well, I can imagine them reading it, but definitely, perhaps it's not appropriate for readers that young. Those series definitely, when I read them, felt like they skewed for an older audience, considering the subject matter involved, considering the amount of sexual content involved in those stories, so. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, you, the listener at home, might be wondering, you know, well, why is this relevant? Well... I think this kind of begs the question, will Manga Plus be possibly... Will they possibly put an age restriction on some of their titles? Um, Lum, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think the possibility of that coming down the line is? Hopefully not. Hopefully they recognize maybe that the audience overseas is actually perhaps a little bit older. It would definitely be kind of a little bit of a unfortunate thing if younger readers were not able to read the, the series. It's just easier if things are openly accessible for everyone but yeah you know because there's all sorts of different content on manga plus and some are more appropriate for young audiences than others it it does raise the question of like will they have to gate off content will they have to like maybe separate into a different app to allow like you know here's the kid-friendly version of manga plus and then here's the version with all the manga including the more mature stuff you know like how there's a youtube for kids and then there's the regular youtube app so who knows if they'll go that route 
Yeah. I honestly, I would be really interested uh, in terms of Manga Plus in particular, like, I'd, I'd really be interested in, like, what the, um, I guess what the data is on, like, um, I, I guess what the age range of most of their user base comes from. Like, I, I'm, I, I wonder how many teenagers are actually using the Manga Plus app as opposed to, like, people our age who are, like, in their mid-20s and older. Yeah, I think when, uh, Part of the conversation that I guess we're not in the loop of is because we kind of are interacting with other fans in our age range. We don't really interact with like the younger fans. We don't really know how many of those younger fans are actually using Manga Plus or the Shonen Jeb app and that stuff. So I would be curious to see the demographics on that, the stats on that. But I kind of have a feeling that in general... These apps are skewing older, but that's only because of my perception based on, you know, the communities we interact with who are older, our age, or even older, so. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, look, like, I'm telling you right now, if I were, if I, if I were still like 15, 16 or whatever, like, and, and I had an official app like this, like, man, that would have been great. (laughs) Most definitely. Definitely could have used something like this as a teenager, but um, I guess just kind of moving on from that uh, to some actual Shonen Jump serialization news. So it was confirmed in the 36th slash 37th issue of Shonen Jump that the promised Neverland has entered the quote unquote climax of the final arc, which, you know, if if you are like us and you're keeping up with the promised Neverland week to week, it's uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, it's probably going to be ending soon. Yeah, there isn't a whole lot left. I mean, the Tefari is happening, and a lot of the nobles are already being killed. Norman's plan is in motion. Like, Emma's racing to meet Norman right now. She already made the promise. Like, it feels like we don't have a whole lot left to cover. I wouldn't be surprised if the series ended before the end of the year. Yeah, I could see that. Um, What is that? That that gives us uh, four months? Yeah, I mean, granted, last year in an interview with Shirai, they said that, you know, in accordance with their editor, the length of the manga would ideally be 20 or so volumes long, 20 to 30. As of right now, Promise Neverland is only 15 or so volumes long, but I can't imagine them stretching it out another year's worth of chapters at the point they're at now. But we'll see. Perhaps they'll surprise us. Perhaps there'll be a turn that necessitates that the story go on just a tad bit longer. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll explore the fallout of this current event happening right now, possibly. I could see that. Um, I'd be up for that personally. But uh, yeah, uh, again, not not really much else to say about that without getting into super heavy spoilers. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Like, If you're not reading The Promised Neverland, what are you doing? It's on the Shonen Jump app, all for just $2. You should go read it. Yeah, it'll only take you one and a half days, considering if you read 100 chapters a day, you can read 100 of the 148 chapters one day, and then 48 chapters the other day. Exactly, yeah. But moving on from that, we did have a series that has ended in Shonen Jump uh, as of the 38th issue, and that is Daijiro Nonoe's The Last Sayuki. And uh, for anyone who was reading The Last Sayuki on the Shonen Jump app, 
Unfortunately, it uh, it did that thing where it's like, oh, we got to end in like a couple of chapters. Let's explain everything we possibly wanted to do for the rest of the series in like two or three chapters so we can get to the end, which is uh, which was unfortunate. And uh, I don't know how much we want to go into it, but uh, I don't know. I, I think as far as as a canceled jump series goes, like I, I think it ended as well as it could have for something as short as it was. I don't know. How do you feel? I think the final chapter especially hit all the right emotional beats, talking about the world might be going to hell, but, you know, there's still things in the world worth fighting for. Let's not give in to fear. We'll inspire people. We'll save this world. It's all really nice and inspiring. It's got a good message behind it, and it felt right, even though we don't see this final battle. Just the bits that we do see, the pacing of it, it feels really satisfying and appropriate. I love the final page where we just see a baseball flying in the air. It's like that cut to black and then seeing that final two-page spread kind of... It's a little air of ambiguity, but just the fact that this baseball is flying through the clouds, like you got the sense that they did succeed. They beat the big final monster and they created a world where everyone can live in peace. And, uh, you know, that just is really smart the way that uh, the author was able to make sure that they got the amount of information they needed to across to give the ending an emotional impact rather than just kind of breeze through everything. They took the time to kind of set the groundwork to explain what the series was all about and then what they wanted to do with it in a way that felt very, to, very satisfying, even though it was cut short. So I liked that. I thought that they tie back to the beginning of the manga where it was like Kay in the mask, like giving the speech about despair is coming and they recontextualized it in a really cool way. And I like that a lot. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I'm not exaggerating when I say that that cut from from the second to last page of the final spread, like that was some masterful stuff. That's going to stick with me. Like, uh, I love the way that transitioned. Um, just... I, man, it really, it really did just kind of take my breath away. But uh, yeah, not much else to say about that. Um, it had its moments where I thought the exposition was like very heavy, and it was kind of a lot to take in at some points. But like, it's a shame because like I was really enjoying it. Like I was hoping it would last a little longer. But uh, yeah, no, um, you know, it's a shame. But I'm, I'm hoping Nonoe can come back for another series at some point. I believe this is their second series in Jump, so. Mm-hmm. And Jump, usually there's a three strikes are out thing. So third one, hopefully that's the charm. Hopefully that's their My Hero Academia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, de- definitely expect the podcast episode on this series at some point in the future. This is this is on the list for canceled Jump manga podcasts, so. Mm-hmm. But um, that's really about it for serialization news. But we do have one more piece of Shonen Jump news. Yes, yes, we do. So, um, moving on, we have another addition to the Shonen Jump Vault, and that is the original Boys Over Flowers manga. Uh, for those who don't know, if if you're on the Shonen Jump app, you'll see that there is a Boys Over Flowers uh, Season 2, I believe it's called. And uh, if if I remember correctly, um, I, I just assumed that, like, 
like I, I didn't realize why Visit picked that up for a simulpub until I realized recently that apparently uh, the sequel series ran in Shonen Jump or is running in Shonen Jump Plus. Yes, it runs in Shonen Jump Plus. Yeah, see, I didn't know that. I, I, I thought I thought that was kind of weird for a while how like, you know, because obviously the original Boys Over Flowers manga ran in a shoujo magazine. So I just assumed season two was just another shoujo manga. But now if we're going by labels, which you really shouldn't, but uh, <laughs> as we talked about on the show, um, if you really want to be technical, Boys Over Flowers season two, because it's on Shonen Jump Plus, makes it a shonen manga. So this is why you shouldn't get too hung up on labels, because there are weird things like this that happen and make the internet explode, I'm sure. But no, yeah, so, you know, if you were keeping up with Boys Over Flowers Season 2 and you were like, oh man, I wish I could read the, the original series, well now you can. The entire Boys Over Flowers original manga series is now on the Shonen Jump vault. Again, for $2 a month, you'll have access to that, plus a lot of different other series that you could read. It's, seriously, if you're not, if you're not using the app... You should start using it. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff you could read on there. And Boys Over Flowers is a lengthy series. It's like over 30 volumes long. So that's going to keep you for a long time. And it makes sense for them to add it now, considering in recent chapters, the protagonist of the original series, Tsukishi Makino, has become a character in the sequel manga, and she's going to be sticking around, it seems. And we've got all sorts of returning characters from the original now making an appearance. Really, it seems like we're entering kind of a final arc of sorts, because... The relationship between Haruto and Oto has kind of reached a good point of development. Like, they're they're definitely a couple now. It's really, like, just have to clear up misunderstandings with her parents. And now it seems like we're getting kind of a, a look into how the relationship between Sakushi and Domyoji have progressed since the end of the previous series. Where it seems like the relationship is really being tested by the Domyoji family. And it's, you know, it's been, like, months since... Sekushi has seen Domyoji. It's like, you know, it seems like we're going to get some closure epilogue to that relationship too, which is very interesting. It seems like it's kind of like a, we're entering a final arc of sorts where it's like we're not only wrapping up the relationship between Oto and Harto, but now we're getting a look back to the relationship of Sukushi and Domyoji. So it's really interesting. Uh, I, I was definitely curious at the development, so gonna be interesting to see how season two progresses from there and if you're confused about well who is Tsukishi who I, I you know from the beginning you know who Domioji is his heart his whole thing is that he's inspired by Domioji and wants to be at, like Domioji so you should know that but like yeah now it's a good opportunity to read the original series and get the full context for what's going on in the current run of Boys Over Flower season two. Mm -hmm. I'm glad they put up the original because honestly, like, I didn't really have a lot of interest in Boys Over Flowers season two in particular, just because it's like, I can't read sequel stuff without reading the first one, because that's just how my brain works. So I'm glad they put up the original because honestly, I'm, if it's on the show to jump app, I'm going to get to it at some point. Um, but this also makes me wonder, um, I hope this leads the way for them to maybe add more shoujo manga on the Shonen Jump app, or I, I don't know how likely that is, or or at the very least, like, it would be cool if, like, if, like, maybe on the Shonen Jump app there was, like, a section for, like, Viz's shoujo stuff. Like, like, maybe, maybe they could put, like, 
a shoujo beat section and if you pay like another dollar or two extra a month you have access to shoujo stuff as well i think that would be really neat that'd be a great idea i definitely think they're testing the waters adding more shoujo into this vault system so whether they make a separate vault for shoujo beat titles or they put them all into the shonen jump vault just because the the shonen jump brand is so recognizable i hope there are more titles added to this because there's a very lengthy backlog of shoujo beat titles that i'd love to access in this vault format as well Honestly, like, if there was a way for people to read the entirety of stuff like My Love Story, Yona of the Dawn, or on High School Host Club, or really anything by, like, Bisco Hattori, especially, like, just, just some of the series I kind of listing off the top of my head, like, I feel like for those in particular, especially, and, like, I'm sure for other stuff I'm not thinking of at the moment, like, I can only imagine, like, uh, what kind of audience you could you could get out of uh, putting extra shoujo manga into the Shonen Jump app. I, I don't know, I, I think that's a good way to maybe get more new people who, maybe they're not as interested in the Jump stuff, or, like, you know, they have, like, one or two series they like, but they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I wish there were other stuff on here. Well, you know what? There you go. There's a, there, there's a freebie for you, Viz. There you go. <laughs> um... But I guess we'll move on to that to uh, another bit of uh, Viz news here. Um, and this one in particular is a new addition to their, um, I guess, to their digital store. Um, so Viz Media will be releasing all 13 volumes of their release of Takao Saito's Gogo 13 digitally on September 24th. Um, I believe pre-orders for those are up on their site and other places such as Kindle, Nook, and Kobo. Um so this is really cool, especially since uh, I, I know that uh, a lot of these volumes of GoGo 13 that they released are definitely out of print, and you will have to shell at least $50 or more to get some of these. So um, I'm glad they're putting these up. Yeah, I looked out getting all the series in print way back in the day. I think there was some right stuff sale or something that I got them all pretty cheap off of. But yeah, since then, they've went out of print and... Very extensive, so I'm glad that they are accessible digitally, and people can get them at an affordable price now. It's uh, very good that more of these older Viz series are getting digital releases, you know, these out-of-print series. Like, Banana Fish was a great boon last year, and now Gogo 13 is another great digital edition for fans who want to collect the series and read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, this release in particular, I I believe is like a best of sort of collection for Gogo 13, because obviously Gogo 13 is a very long series, and I think is still going, as far as I can remember. Yep, it's still ongoing. Yeah, so I think this was all that uh, Viz was able to put out, and they probably won't put out anymore, but... Honestly, for, for, for like really long running episodic stuff like this and like Kochikame or whatever, God forbid they ever license Kochikame. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think these best of collections, I think, are like the best we could hope for. It's a good compromise for sure. You get 13 volumes worth of the best stories from a manga that's over 190 volumes long and it's been running for over 50 years. So. It's a good compromise, and it's a good collection of stories, so glad people can start reading them. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in those, uh, again, on September 24th, you'll be able to buy them. Mm-hmm. 
But speaking of classic manga, you'll soon be able to buy Udon Entertainment revealed at San Diego Comic-Con that finally the first volume of Ryoko Ikeda's Rosa Rasai manga is coming out this December with the remaining four volumes shipping out three or four months apart from that. And they gave in and the covers of all the releases, which look absolutely beautiful. Erica Friedman recently revealed that she is the editor of the Udon release. And that was really great to hear because Erica is very passionate about classic Yuri and Shoujo titles. And I just know that she did a bang up job on this. So I'm super looking forward to the Udon release of Rosa Rasai. I'm really excited it's finally coming out that uh, the original manga will finally be available to read for the first time in English and that's just incredibly exciting so it took a long time for us to get here but now that the end of the road is in sight you know I am very grateful that this is finally coming out and I know it's just going to be a darn stellar release mm-hmm. I mean now that the anime is kind of not really licensed anymore unfortunately you know now we have the manga to fall back on definitely definitely and hopefully the anime is relicensed at some point because that's such an important part of anime history too but the manga finally a not an essential part of manga history finally is available for north american readers to seek out and read and that's so cool so really looking forward to these books finally coming out all right watch out for december mm-hmm but another book I'm really looking forward to coming out is the sequel series to the Kazesan and series, Kazesan and Yamada, which follows the titular couple Kaze and Yamada as university students and how their relationship kind of develops and as they go through their university years. From what I've heard, it continues to be a really charming series and a really fantastic relationship. So looking forward to reading sequel series and volume one's going to come out on february 11 2020 so looking forward to that for sure but some other cool books coming out are from denpa who have licensed katsuya terada's rakuda lass which has uh is about a cool rogue yakuza member named i rakuda and it's the first manga of this author to feature an original character of theirs. And this manga was originally published as three irregular installments from 1994 to 1998, then had two new installments in 2010 in Tokuma Shoten's monthly re- comic review. And then Tokuma Shoten published a final cut edition in June 2018. And Katsuya Terada is best known for designing Blood the Last Vampire and the Monkey King manga series, which was previously published in English by Dark Horse Comics. So this looks like a fun, hard-boiled Yakuza manga. And I'm sure like lots of people are looking forward to some really gritty Yakuza action. But with something I'm really looking forward to, it's a new Shuzo Oshimi work called Shino Can't Say Her Name. And this is a coming-age story about a girl called Shino Ushima who has difficulty speaking with people and a low opinion of herself, can't fit into her environment. But she gets to know her classmate who loves music but is tone deaf. And they begin hanging out with each other. And this manga seems to be based on experiences 
of Oshimis themselves. So that's very interesting. And both of these books, Shino Can't Say Her Name and Rakuda Laps are supposed to come out next summer from Dempa. So looking forward to both of these titles. They both sound extremely interesting. I'm glad to see Dempa continue to publish more Oshimi works following Inside Mari. So really, really awesome new licenses from them. Yeah, but both of these sound really interesting. Uh, I think Rakuda Laughs in particular has a I, like I'm just looking at the uh, cover and man, it I, I really like the style of this comic already. Like I need to check this one out. Oh, yeah. Got a very underground, gritty vibe. For sure. For sure. But our last bit of licensing news comes from Jay Novel Club, who is licensed Sixiled by Six's partner, Lilo Kick Me Out, so I teamed up with a mythical sorceress, which is by author Amiko Kairuda and illustrator Kazutomo Mia, and it is... About, well, the title is self-explanatory, as many of these uh, long light novel titles are, but it's about a talented mage adventurer who got kicked out of her party by Sixus comes back, so she goes to the wasteland and blows stuff up, but she does, in the process, free a mythical sorceress named Laplace, who is sealed away for 300 years, but the sorceress is actually pretty cool, and she wants to start a party of her own, and Tanya wants revenge, so they have a very obvious solution in that they team up, kick ass, kick girls, and dismantle the patriarchy. And this sounds like a damn fun time. I'm really excited to read this, and looking forward to checking it out. The part of the first volume is already available to read on J Novel Club's website, and hopefully the full book will be published very soon. All right, um, but I think that's it for uh, for licensing news. So moving on from that, we have a lot of miscellaneous news uh, that we want to talk about, and uh, this one admittedly is is a bit old, but also admittedly there hasn't been a lot of news on this particular project, so I figured it'd still be interesting to talk about. Um, so in the 34th issue of Shonen Jump, it looks like we got some new news as far as the uh, live-action Hollywood One Piece adaptation is concerned. And it looks like, uh, in particular, the head writer for this project was announced, that being uh, Matt Owens, who, from from what I could tell, has written a few episodes uh, for shows such as uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, The Defenders, and Luke Cage. Uh, so he's worked on a lot of Marvel stuff, and I believe he's worked on a few comics as well. And uh, it looks like, uh, b- b- basically, from what I'm reading of uh, Owens' uh, statement he provided... Uh, I'm not going to go over the whole thing word for word, but uh, essentially he talks about how basically how much he loves One Piece and basically how excited he is to work on this project. And it, it looks like he is he he's very focused on wanting to uh, satisfy new and old fans of of this new project, which I think which I think is good. Like, I'm really glad somebody who actually likes the source material is working on this. Um, I, I'd have to look this up, but I. Um, I, I feel like I, I remember when Dragon Ball Evolution was a thing, um, as much as people would like to forget about it. Um, I, I feel like I heard somewhere that the director had, like, read all of the Dragon Ball manga in preparation for directing the movie. And, I mean, if that is true, like, it, it, it I mean, you know, look at how much good that did us. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, and, and and not not to throw too much shade, but, I mean, like, I, I really hope this is a trend going forward with a lot of these 
anime adaptations like you know I'm, I'm like look at stuff like Battle Angel Alita from this past year like cl- clearly either Robert Rodriguez or James Cameron I don't know which but at, le- I, I, at least well, one of them James was pretty... Cameron was the huge fan of Alita who was wanted to make that film since the 90s and okay. then he kind of passed off the job to Robert Rodriguez because he has to direct all those Avatar sequels mm-hmm. okay. like uh, he was the one who like kind of owns the rights to make Alita films and it's the reason why that movie got made for sure mm-hmm. um but yeah, like I was saying, it's it, it's a good thing to it's a good thing I think to get people on who are actually like fans of the source material and not not just people who are like like oh I know what that thing is sure I'll make a movie out of it or whatever like this this actually makes me feel pretty positive about this uh, about this new One Piece project coming up um, and unfortunately that's kind of all the news we have on it at this point like uh, again like I think this was announced two years ago at this point yeah because we discussed it on our one piece episode which we did in the celebration of the 20th anniversary of the manga so that was back in 2017 so it's been two years since that announcement of the live action one piece project and we've yet to see a truly bear fruit but it seems like progress is being made ever so slowly so we'll see i'm, I'm a little disappointed we haven't gotten any more news or at least more than this, but at the same time, I feel like we have to keep in mind that, like, adapting something like One Piece is probably a huge undertaking, so, like, honestly, you know, when you think about it that way, like, I kind of want them to put as much time into this as they can, so. Yeah, I mean, James Cameron was trying to get out that Alita movie made for 20 years. Like, literally, there were talks of him wanting to make that move for 20 years and it's keep up with aiding saying oh this is what i'm gonna make it this is what i'm gonna make it so who knows when this one piece project is actually going to finally get made but you know at least they're working on it. at least they seem to get are getting more people on board they got someone on board to script it so who knows hopefully in the next couple of years it'll bear fruit it takes a long time to make movies but you know, it seems this project is coming along at the very least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so we do have some more uh, adaptation news to talk about. Uh, two of them uh, involving Junji Ito. So the first piece of news came out um, at the time of this recording about a month ago at this point. So again, it is kind of old, but like, I still thought it was worth talking about. Um, so streaming service Quibi... Uh, that's spelled Q-U-I-B-I. I'm going to assume it's pronounced that way. Um, apparently announced that uh, they will be producing a live-action series adaptation of Junji Ito's Tomie manga. Um, so just kind of talking about Quibi real quick. So apparently Quibi, uh, the name of the streaming service, is apparently a, like a portmanteau for Quick Bites. That's what it's short for. And describes itself as coming from Hollywood and Silicon Valley stating that it will stream quick bites of captivating entertainment created for mobile by the best talent designed to fit perfectly into any moment of your day. And that is kind of important because essentially for this adaptation of Tomie, uh, the series will have episodes that are less than 10 minutes in length. So that's pretty interesting. Um, And as far as production credits for this goes, it looks like uh, Alexandre Asia, Aja, uh, who who is uh, responsible for The Hills Have Eyes will be directing this, uh, as well as uh, David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, 
who is uh, known for The Conjuring, will be penning the series in particular. Uh, both are also serving as executive producers, while Hiroki Shiroda is the co-producer. Um, so there you go. Um, I guess, uh, Lum, are you familiar with any of those names at all, by any chance? Well, I know the Conjuring series, the famous like film series, it's like they keep making new movies and there's that Annabelle series that's a spin-off from them and all that. So it's they're getting horror people in here, you know, they're getting people who are big on the scene, big names in horror, which is a good sign when you're making an adaptation of a horror manga. I guess I'm interested in like how the length is going to factor into the production of the series, like because the Tomie manga is basically made up of a bunch of like short stories involving this involving this one titular character. So I don't know. I I wonder because I mean I don't know. I, I guess you couldn't really fit uh, these stories in like until like a twenty minute half hour long thing. That I guess I guess ten I guess ten minutes is probably about the right length or so. I don't know. I'm. I guess I'm interested in seeing how they will use that link to their advantage. Mm-hmm. I think they can very easily use it to their advantage, just in the fact that these just, the original stories are so short. Like you can't really stretch them out to a full half hour. So, like having the short format actually would work very well for like again what they want to go for, which is like these bite sites chunks of horror. In terms of uh, more information on the staff behind us. David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick uh, is also, in addition to writing The Conjuring Toons 3, also actually did the screenplay for Aquaman and is doing the screenplay for Aquaman 2 and wrote for seasons 2 and 7 through 9 of The Walking Dead. So he's had some uh, pretty big credits under his name. Mm-hmm, interesting. Um, I'm trying to look up in- more info about uh, Quibi at the moment. It looks like their website's not functional yet? No, it, it hasn't launched yet. The platform is launching on April 6, 2020. Okay, okay. That's good. That's good. Uh, it's basically a joint venture from Jeffrey Katzenberg, co-founder of DreamWorks, and former eBay CEO Meg Whitman. So that's kind of what they're talking about in terms of coming from Hollywood and Silicon Valley. You got a guy who comes from the entertainment industry and a guy and a person who comes from the tech world, the e-commerce world, they're coming in to launch this new streaming service, which has, like, where other streaming services are focused on, like, long-form content to attract eyeballs. Their strategy is people have short attention spans. Let's make short-form content that's easily bingeable. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of interesting. Um, it looks like when this uh, when this service does premiere, it looks like it's going to be four ninety nine with short ads and seven ninety nine without ads. So, I don't know. I'm I'm really hoping. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm hoping that this Tomie adaptation will be good, but I I also wonder what kind of other content uh, they're going to feature on this service because it it it, se- it seems like they're going to be focusing on just pretty much all original content. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, they have a horror series from Steven Spielberg in the pipeline called Spielberg After Dark. So perhaps horror will be a niche they'll be focusing on as well. Oh, see, that's interesting. Um, But yeah, I think that's about all the info we have on that. So I guess I guess in April 2020, we'll one of us will check that. I, I would be interested in checking that out personally. So I don't know. Maybe I'll give it a watch. So. 
But speaking of Junji Ito adaptations that'll come out in 2020. Oh, yeah. This one, I'm admittedly, I'm a lot more excited for. So at the time of this recording, uh, Crunchyroll Expo happened this weekend. And uh, at the Junji Ito panel at Crunchyroll Expo, uh, it was basically announced that one of his more seminal works, Uzumaki, will be getting an anime adaptation. Uh, it looks like it'll be a miniseries that will basically be airing on the Adult Swim Toonami block in 2020. Um, and uh, from 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 other info, I've kind of like looked around. It seems like this is like uh, basically the panel, I think, promoted it as like a miniseries. But I think but I think over on the production, it's being produced like as a movie. So I'm assuming this is like a like a movie length production that's basically going to be broken up into parts for uh, for broadcast on television. Yeah, it's going to be a four part event, so they'll air it over four nights, and perhaps later they'll air the whole thing in as one cut in like a TV movie format. Yeah. Um. So it looks like it's going to be produced by Production IG, uh, as well as directed by Hiroshi Nagahama. Uh, who is best known for directing shows such as Mushishi, and I think the Flowers of Evil anime, if I remember correctly. Yeah, specifically, Ito became interested in the idea of making Uzumaki into an anime if he could have Nagahama directed, because he loved Nagahama's work on the Flowers of Evil anime. Yeah, which, honestly, like, like I, I was just thinking about this, you know, when when this was announced the other day, like, like thinking back on a lot of the uh, the adaptations, whether be whether they be animated or live action, like uh, when I think back on like all the adaptations that Junji Ito's works have gotten, like honestly, like I don't know, because I I watched the live action Uzumaki, I feel like I'd have to watch it again because like I didn't really care for it, but I I I think people like it though, um, so I don't know, but uh, I've watched stuff like the. Uh, uh, the Gyo animated OVA, um, I thought it was fun, and I thought it was kind of campy, but I didn't think it really was... It didn't really... It wasn't really as scary for me as his original manga was, um, which, again, like, that's... Th- I mean, th- that's the problem, with, I feel like, with a lot of these, like, animated adaptations of Ito's work, is that, like, it's really hard to live up to Ito's work. Like, because his, his, his stuff is really special, and, th- and I think that's why, like you know, a lot of people have, like, gravitated towards it, especially over here in the West. Because um, I, I know that, like, it's a shame, too, because I remember being excited for the Junji Ito collection, the animated TV series. I remember being really excited for that. But, like, I feel like after it premiered, like, nobody, I didn't see anybody talking about it. Yeah, people didn't like the Junji Ito collection show. Like, people were very disappointed in that because it was very flatly directed and they matched stories together that people felt were totally appropriate. Super Eyepatch Wolf did this uh, good video kind of breaking down what didn't work about the show compa- and where it fell short compared to the original stories they were adapting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a great video. We'll probably link that in the show notes for anybody who wants to watch it. But uh, yeah, so basically the, my, my, the point that I'm trying to make is that if Hiroshi Nagahama was chosen by Ito himself, then, like, I have a lot of faith in this. Like, I'm actually, like, because they've also, they also showed off a teaser trailer at the panel as well, which, again, we'll, we'll probably link in the show notes for anybody who wants to see it. 
But man, it looked so good. Like, I'm so excited for this. It's not even funny. Yeah, I mean, this Nagahama is a director who knows how to imbue atmosphere into his works. And that's what's really needed to bring Ito stories, you know, to life in animation is that you need to give it a gravitas. You need to make it have a slope or make it like the moments have weight and that have things build to the creepy vibe so mushishi was really successful at that in evoking a sense of tone and getting you immersed into the world through the sound designs through the background layouts and the pacing of the show and i think the trailer definitely successfully shows that he's bringing those same talents to the Uzumaki anime. So this looked very promising. It also looks extremely detailed and true to the original manga. It's capturing its aesthetic and uh, capturing Ito's line work in particular. I was quite impressed that the character designs don't even seem simplified from the original manga. It truly feels like his manga brought to life. So very much looking forward to seeing the full thing in action. Yeah, like it's all in black and white even and like, you know, it's also worth mentioning that uh, Colin Setson, uh, the composer for the mu- for the soundtrack of Hereditary, is going to be doing the music on this. And I haven't seen Hereditary yet. Um, hopefully, I'll fix that this Halloween. But uh, yeah, um, I haven't seen that movie. I hear good things, but like, if his music is like even half as good as like the music we got in this teaser trailer, like man, I like I really I really thought the music in that trailer like really brought the scene together like i'm actually really excited to see uh what kind of work they have in store for uh for the series mm-hmm. and it honestly makes me excited to finally watch hereditary um but uh I, I think there's a lot of talent behind this adaptation in particular and like i don't know man, like it, it's funny um and I don't, I don't know if i want to admit this but um I feel like we talked about this on the show before. Like, I I used to not be super into horror. Um, I feel like when I originally read Uzumaki, like, I thought it was good and I enjoyed it. But, like, I don't feel like I really, like, understood it the first time I read it. So, like, I don't know. It didn't do much for me the first time I read it. But it's definitely one of those things to where after I've, like, revisited it uh, again and again, like, I, I love it, like, so much more. Like, it's... It's it's such a good work, and it's probably Ito's best work in my opinion. Uh, so like, I don't know. I'm just I'm just so excited to see this. Like, I'm sorry, I, I need to stop gushing so we can <laughs> like move on to the rest of the show. Um, but yeah, no, look forward to that. It's gonna be on Adult Swim's Toonami, and uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, so uh, I think we have some just just a couple more news pieces that we want to talk about real quick. Just a couple more. There was recently an announcement of when the new Blade of the Immortal anime will be coming out. And it'll be coming out this October, streamed only on Amazon Prime Video. We got a cast list uh, for the show as well. Kenjiro Suda is going to be playing Manji. Yes, I love Kenjiro Suda. And we have Ayani Sakura as Rin. And... uh, we got a few other credits. Hiroshi Hamasaki is directing the anime at Lidden Films, and they are best known for Steins Gate in Orange. Makoto Fukami is overseeing the series scripts, and they're known for the CG Berserk and Psychopaths. Shingo Ogiso uh, is doing character designs, and they're known for the heroic legend of Arslan. 
and uh, singer-songwriter Eiko Ishibashi is composing the music. So, I am a little skeptical about the show just on the grounds that we only got the announcement that it was being made in May, and now it's coming out in October. It feels a little bit sudden, so it has me very worried. Still, the staff behind it has made some strong works before, and they've done good work before, so... I will hopefully, uh, you know, hold out hope on this that it'll be a more successful adaptation than the previous attempt. I will say the trailer didn't give me too much hope in that regard, just because it wasn't particularly animated. It certainly showed some sense of style and tone, but it also seemed like it was very deliberately eliminated in how it was only showing close-ups of the characters' faces and eye movements. I will say that the background arc looked very lovely, especially like that bamboo forest. Or, and, you know, that looked pretty nice. Uh, the spinning wheel looked pretty nice, but we'll see how it turns out. Uh, and basically all the staff credits, the cast licks, you know, they look very strong, but Blade of the Immortal, the strength of its uh, characters and the character development is, of course, the the top strength of the manga, but also a huge part of it is, of course, the incredible action sequences that Hiroki Samura draws that just by the nature of how the manga looks and just uh, the amount of detail put into those sequences, I would imagine would be difficult to replicate in animation or be incredibly time consuming and we've seen before how series like the cg berserk took shortcuts and i'm worried about that so i know belated immortal is such a fantastic manga i would love for the new animated adaptation especially since it's covering the whole story to live up to it but i am a little concerned just because it feels like the release is happening a little too soon and the cast and the credits, uh, the staff credits are very talented, competent people, but no no names that really stuck out to me as, oh man, I'm super excited for this person to be a part of this project. But we'll see how this adaptation turns out and crossing fingers that it'll be more successful. And hey, uh, at the very least, it'd be cool to see it cover the whole story and, you know, go way farther past where the original one core show covered, which was like five volumes worth. Like if this covers the entire 30 volumes, that'd be pretty neat in its own right. I don't know if I'm planning on watching it week to week just yet, but like I would at least like to check it out. But in a more exciting news, or at least promising news to me, uh, Anime NYC is going to be hosting Gundam creator Yoshiyuki Tomino. And actually, you haven't heard this podcast yet, but recently I talked with uh, Mari Morimoto uh, for our Saint Seiya podcast, and she actually revealed that she will be uh, interpreting for Tomino at Anime NYC. Oh, wow. So that is very exciting. So yes, uh, I'm attending Anime NYC this year. I'm really, really excited to attend uh, Tomino's panel. It's his anime and I see appearance is going to be his only U.S. appearance as part of the 48th anniversary celebration of Gundam. So it's a big deal. And it just adds on to all the excitement that's going to be happening there at anime and I see. So, yeah, super, super cool. Mm hmm. So, Lum, K 
can we expect a four-plus-hour podcast on Anime NYC? Yeah, if I have time to record it, uh, hopefully, you know, we'll see. Uh, it depends on the events that we go to, like how much we do. It also depends on timing, of course, because we got Red NYC is like Thanksgiving and whatever, and I'll... So we'll we'll see we'll see if I, we can record a podcast on it, but you know hopefully if we do it won't be four hours long. That's too exhausting <laughs> both to record and to edit. So hopefully we manage to restrain ourselves next time. <laughs> oh, isn't that isn't that what Manga Mavericks is all about? Is trying to show restraint and always failing. <laughs> um. So so when 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 is Anime NYC for anybody listening? Anime NYC is November 15th through the 17th. All right. And uh, it looks like it'll be at the Javits Center in Midtown, Manhattan. Yep. Same place where they hold New York Comic Con, which I'm also going to this year. All right. So if anybody's interested in going, there you go. Mm-hmm. And now we have one final bit of miscellaneous fun to cover and that is the latest dr stone popularity poll the second overall dr stone popularity poll which came out a couple weeks ago in the chapter that uh came out at the end of july so we got the results for both the japanese readers and the english readers which do you want to start with first uh let, let's let's see what japan has to say about dr stone all right bottom to top yeah sure sure so at number 10, we got Francois, the gender-neutral butler of Ryusui. I've been pronouncing their name as Francis, or Francis. I don't know if that's right or not, though. Well, based on the way that their name is spelled, it would be pronounced Francois, but... Okay, yeah, see, I, I, don't, I don't know French, so I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah, so they're a cool character. Uh, they are a very skilled chef, and... Uh, they ha have a good dynamic with Bruce Lee. They're, they're quite enjoyable, and hopefully uh, they'll get revived uh, in a couple chapters, and it'll be nice to have them back in the story. At number nine, we have Byakua, Senku's dad, who repeatedly is a tearjerker in flashbacks. He had a very powerful moment in a couple chapters ago where flashback revealed that he was collecting gold basically in the river all the way until his dying days. Oh, that was, he knew that was Senku a good chapter. Would need it in the future. Yeah. yeah. So extremely compelling character. No surprise to see him rank so high. And then at number eight, we've got Chrome. Blasphemy. What? He should not be so low. That makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Surprise Japanese readers have fallen on chrome in recent times but i guess chrome has also been out of the story and not as focused on recently so perhaps that would make sense i guess that's true yeah especially in comparison to number seven suika who has been quite an mvp in recent chapters really helped out kinro on the boat and like uh getting the mobile lab out and all that stuff you know Suika's reliably you know a very tactful character because of her size and the fact that characters can under and her camouflage ability so oh yeah you know always a lot of fun but of probably the most mvp is kohaku in terms of recent chapters considering like she is part of the infiltration team getting into the master's harem to kind of 
see what's up with the situation, make sure to get the gold out to Senku's gang, broke Ryuzui's statue cleanly so that they could recover his body and revive him without too much problem. Kawaku's been doing some real good work in the last couple of chapters. Uh, been doing some really awesome stuff, which is pretty nice to see. Mm-hmm, for sure. Quite surprised at number five, Sakasa. Since Sakasa's been out of the story so long, but, you know, he leaves quite an impression. He is still quite a memorable character, and I'm sure that people getting into the anime for the first time will also be quite looking forward to seeing more of him as the show progresses, uh, assuming they get to, like, the climax of the Stone Wars. Mm -hmm. Kinro comes in at number four here. Kinro... Uh, oh, I guess just a classically cool character. He's got a good look with his glasses. Uh, not been in the story much recently, but I guess that uh, chapter where he kind of telepathically or heart communicating with Ginro saying, you know, I know you can do this. I know you can be brave and get off the boat and like save everyone and all that stuff. And that was a good moment he had recently. I mean, I, th- I think you hit it on the money. Like, you know, in general, he's a... He's a cool guy with a spear and glasses, and honestly, that's enough to make me vote for him. Yeah. So, consistently popular, even though he hasn't done too much in the story recently, but he's not number four. At number three, we've got reliable old Gen, and, you know, Gen is probably consistently one of the best characters in the series. I feel recently... Well, no, he's used his mentalist skills quite well in in, uh, deciphering messages from allies in helpful ways. So, again, consistently MVP. Plays off Senku probably the best out of all the cast. One of the best characters in the series, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I I feel like in general, as far as I... As far as... I go personally, like, I feel like Gen is probably, like, the most interesting character in Dr. Stone. But yeah, n- number number two, I was I was actually pretty surprised. Yeah, Ryuzui comes in number two, and for being such a recent character, he's made quite an impression. I guess people really like his personality, that he's kind of this arrogant, but he still uh, means well, is quite righteous in his own right. You know, he sacrificed himself to save Suika on the boat uh, from getting petrified. And, like, first thing uh, he does when he gets revived is that he assesses the situation, hits it right on the money, uh, makes good call in reviving Taiju in order to get Kaseki out using his strength. Uh, really good moments with Ryusui. Like, he's, uh, he's definitely become one of the most uh, prominent and uh, fun characters in the cast. Oh, yeah. I, I could definitely see... I could definitely see his personality and his philosophy, like, really leaving an impact on readers. Like, he's he, he's a pretty, like, larger-than-life character, as far as his personality goes. Mm-hmm. And the number one is, of course, Senku, who, you know, is definitely the main character of the series, and the consistently one of the most entertaining, most interesting, compelling. So, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Pretty uh, solid choice to have the main character as number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we uh, talk about the English readers' uh, poll results? Yeah, the English readers differ in interesting ways. So, number 10 is Yuzu Riha, who is also kind of an MVP thanks to her craftsmanship skills and ability to reassemble the statues. You know, she 
in many ways, it felt towards the end of uh, the Stone Wars and then, like, beginning of, like, the... When they were assembling the boat and kind of making all their preparations to leave and stuff, Yuzuriha seemed like a kind of more important than Taiju in the story, which was kind of interesting. But now, of course, she's kind of taken them back. See, she hasn't been, you know, involved as much since she's been petrified again. But, you know, I do enjoy her character a lot. I'm glad that she kind of has gotten a lot of dub and she got a lot of time to shine the story not too long ago in terms of like making the sales and stuff so really enjoy her character number nine is where we find reviews to be not as popular with american readers as japanese readers but still uh, he's definitely made a great impression Eight is where we find sakasa again not as popular with english readers but still quite popular Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess for English readers, like, you know, he, he hasn't been as involved in the story, I guess, which I'm I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's probably a big reason why he's probably a number eight, so. Perhaps. But at seven, we have Taiju, which recent chapters, I, I would definitely agree with Taiju. Just the last two, he immediately reminded me why he's such a great character he's just like his simple mindedness but good-hearted nature is just is very immediately compelling and he definitely makes himself very useful very fast but i think perhaps this could also be motivated by people remembering oh taiju he's such a fun character in the early parts of the story especially uh thanks to the anime so it's a shame that uh he and senku's dynamic only lasted for so long yeah I mean, Chrome kind of superseded him. Is kind of a he's a very similar character in terms of personality, but Chrome has the advantage over Taiju in that he can actually play off Senku because he's a scientist himself, whereas Taiju is kind of more of just muscle, and there's only so much he could, they could do with him. They they have more in common. They they have more to bond over. So, yeah. And number six is where we find Kaseki, who, which is down from number two in the previous poll for English readers. But still, uh, Kaseki remains consistently one of the most popular characters with English readers. And uh, I guess English readers just like the old man who is extremely buff and uh, really skilled craftsman. So, yeah. C- come on, Lum. Who doesn't like buff old men? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure Hiromu Karakawa would agree if she was a reader of Dr. Stone. <laughs> uh, uh, number five is Suika. Again, I think Suika is very popular for English readers. And again, she's a great character. So glad to see her up there, as is Kohaku. And then uh, number three and one are the same as they are in the Japanese pool. Uh, Gen and Senku. But Chrome comes in number two, much higher than with uh, Japanese readers. And I think we already discussed it before, but Chrome is a great character because he has like the similar good-hearted personality traits that Taiju has. But he also is a genuine scientist in his own right and very clever in his own right. So that allows more flexibility into what they can do with him in the story. And uh, I was quite surprised Chrome was one of the petrified characters at the beginning of the current arc. Like, that surprised me because I thought Chrome was such a major character. And he still hasn't been revived yet, but I hope we do see him return to the story soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll come back eventually. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think aside from Gen, Chrome is probably probably another one of my favorites. So I'm really glad to see him so high up. Mm-hmm. But that was a pretty solid popularity poll. 
am pretty pleased with the results on both fronts. I think, in general, Dr. Stone has a great cast, so you could go either way, and I think that you can just pick out a lot of favorites, because there's a lot to choose from. I will say that I am surprised that uh, Kinro was not in either one, because I thought that he made such an impression in the recent arc with like his cowardliness and then consistently like showing how much of a goober he is, even though he has made himself useful. Mm-hmm. But uh, regardless, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess readers don't necessarily like how much of a whiny, complainy pants he is, uh, even <laughs> though I think he's quite amusing. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. But that is it for all the news. Yep, and now we can move into our discussion of the two new Shonen Jump simulpubs, Mission Yozakura Family and Mitama Security Spirit Busters. All right, so uh, I guess we could talk about Yozakura Family first. Um, You want to tell our good listeners at home what Yozakura Family is about? Sure, Mission Yozakura Family is about a family of assassins, and basically the head of the family is Mutsumi, who is, I think, she's one of the younger members of the family, but basically she's the only one who doesn't really have any crazy eccentric superpower, whereas the other members of the family, they all have their eccentric skills and are extremely talented in the art of assassination. But she, you know, as the normal one, is designated as head of the family. And it's it's explained that basically talent skips a generation. So her descendants supposedly will be extremely talented, even though she herself is not. But that is precisely why she's head of the family and the other members of the family have to protect her. And because the Yozakura family has many enemies, she is being targeted by someone who is supposedly gotten close to her at her school. And her, uh, the eldest brother... Uh, suspected that uh, our main character, Tayo Asano, was the target that was trying to get close to her uh, to assassinate her. But Tayo and Mutsubi have been best friends since, you know, they were kids. And Mutsubi was someone Tayo could kind of rely on after he lost his family in a car crash because, you know, he kind of closed off from other people afterwards because he's scared of losing people he cares about. So it's hard for him to make friends. He kind of gets anxious when people try to talk to him and reach out to him. But Mutsumi promised him, like, at his family's funeral that, you know, she won't leave him. So he, he she's, like, the one person, like, he's able to kind of talk to and interact with. But... Because uh, Kyoshiro targets him thinking he might be an assassin, like he gets rescued by the other members of the family. And in order to save his life, since Kyoshiro, the eldest brother, is just his skills as an assassin outclass all the members of the other family. And he puts uh, Mutsumi in a hard place because basically he'll kill Tayo unless he, she agrees to never leave the house again and just be under surveillance all the time, 24-7. So Tayo decides to marry Mutsumi to officially become a member of the Yozakura family. So Kyochiro can't break the family's one big rule, which is that they can't target or kill other family members. 
So they basically exchange uh, the Yozakura family rings and kind of become an engaged couple. And so now he shares the mission of the Yozakura family to protect Mutsumi from a bevy of crazy assassins. Such as in the second chapter, a bomber who is obsessed with just tweeting out everything <laughs> he's going to do on Twitter, which was quite hilarious. But the danger is real. But uh, it, it just the fact that so transparently the bomber was just revealing everything he was going to do on Twitter. And then even as he was like dying in flames, he was tweeting. It was pretty amazingly funny. So this is a series from uh, the creator of Prince Poro's Demon Diaries, which was a jumpstart from a couple of years ago. And it's quite a different series. It is still quite comedic, but it definitely has more of an action element to it. I think it's much more successful than Poro because it definitely has a stronger emotional hook in the fact that it's about finding a surrogate family and kind of dealing with loss in a way. Like he, you know, the Tayo is super affected by the loss of his family that is not able to reach out to people. But, you know, now he has kind of found a circuit family in the Yosakura family. He's found people that he's able to form connections with and can depend on to protect him. Even Kyochiro, who, you know, deeply hates him. In the second chapter, he saves his life because they are family and he's not going to let him die. So... It's, uh, they got a strong, like, emotional core. It's got a strong philosophy behind it, which makes it, uh, pretty compelling. But also, I think the characters are all fun. Every member of the Yosakura family is quite weird in distinct, interesting ways. There's a guy who is, like, naked and in a trash can. There's a guy who wears a bucket over his hand and is really timid. There's a girl who is obsessed with just playing games on her phone and she uses drones to attack people. There's a Lolita girl who like attacks with wires. Uh, There's a lot of really interesting characters in the Yosakura family that I'm interested in seeing explored more going forward. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure eventually we'll get a big arc where like they all have to fight against a common enemy or whatever. And we'll get, we'll get to see like, all their powers and stuff at 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 work and they'll they'll all get their time to shine i'm sure yeah i would imagine that we might even get like individual character arcs to show off each character like in other manga where you have like a team of characters they kind of get their own little arc where you kind of get to know them so that'd be cool with the series too I, I see the series doing like really short episodic kind of stories, like well, like more one-off stories before getting into arcs. I guess just because like that's just that's just how a lot of these jump manga tend to run at first. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, I really like this one. Uh, I think this has a lot of potential. Um, certainly more potential than uh, uh, than Poro. Um, not not that I like didn't like it, but like, and I don't I don't know where the series went you know, past its third chapter, because I don't, I don't, obviously, we, I, I couldn't read past that, because it was a jumpstart back then, and it didn't get picked up, but, um, I don't know, I, I feel like this, this series has a lot more going for it, you know, like you said, like, I really enjoy the emotional hook of it, I definitely see myself getting pretty attached to, uh, to Tayo and his whole predicament, um, I really hope that, like, 
I don't know. I, I hope maybe later on we get to see more interaction between him and Kyoichiro because, and I don't know if maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but it really felt like in the first chapter they were hinting towards some kind of some kind of big incident where because of whatever happened, he started, he, he felt like he needed to be more protective of Mutsumi to this like really weird like Oprah protective extent where, you know, like we said, you know, he, he doesn't even want her like out of the house. Like it's really, it's really interesting, twisted stuff. Yeah. He got Mutsumi involved in some sort of accident. And that's why one strand of her hair turned white essentially. And since then he's been overprotective of her. And I don't quite buy that Mutsumi doesn't have some sort of power or significance to it. Perhaps Kuyichiro knows something more about the incident that caused that gray hair accident perhaps that's tied to like some actual power that Mutsumi does has as head of the Ozakura family like I imagine that might be a twist in the series down the line that Mutsumi isn't as powerless as she seems but I I could see that being an incident that like will slowly get breadcrumbs as to like what actually happened kind of like with assassination classroom almost yeah, I also wouldn't be surprised if that same incident where Mutsumi got injured also is tied in somehow to what happened to Tayo's family. Maybe. Because Mutsumi's hair did turn gray before that funeral, so there's some likelihood that perhaps the timeline could add up. Both things could be connected somehow. I think I think that'd be interesting, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading more of this, like, um, and I, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but like, I really feel like Gondaira in particular, I feel like, I really have to wonder if they're like really into Hunter Hunter, cause like, I don't know, uh, I don't really have as much like evidence as far as like uh, Demon Prince Poro is concerned, but like, I remember reading the first chapter that, uh, that particular, that one particular page where like he's fighting against like his friend's bullies or whatever, and I remember there was one page that really stuck out to me where, like, uh, I think it's that double page spread where, like, I think he's punching a guy or something. Like, I remember, I remember, like, these long flowing strands of hair that, like, like, it, it felt, it felt like an action sequence that, like, Togashi would draw almost. And even with, like, Yozakura family, like, I feel like, I feel like a family of an assassin's with, with a particular, like, dynamic, like, I, I almost have to wonder if, like, Maybe they're pulling some sort of inspiration from, like, the Zoldic family, almost. Definitely Illumi's overprotectiveness of Killua. I think you can draw a comparison between that and Kyochiro's obsession with Mutsumi. I think that would be a fun comparison. I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Uh, Togashi is such an influential creator, Hunter Hunter, and Yu Hakusho is such influential series. I wouldn't be surprised if the author took inspiration from those works with Yosakura family. Mm-hmm. Because it, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, they're they're just like Togashi's works, but like, I feel like there are certain like aspects of the series that make me feel like, huh, this kind of has like shades of Hunter Hunter almost, uh, in terms of its like overall premise and like even like some of the action scenes almost um which um i don't know why i'm suddenly thinking of this but like i think this is what i wanted out of like nisekoi because mm. when uh, when i first started nisekoi like i don't know if i've talked about this on the show before but like when i first started reading nisekoi like all the way back when it first started running in jump like 
I, I mostly started reading it because, like, I really liked the Yakuza angle behind it. Like, I really liked that these two characters who were forced to be in a relationship, like, both came from, like, a family of gangsters. And I was I was hoping that maybe there'd be, like, a heavy a uh, action element to it. And, and not, not that Nisekoi didn't have action, but, like... You know, I, I feel like I didn't get enough of that from Nisekoi because it was it was mainly a rom com, and you know that's fine, that's what it was. But like, I'm I feel like I'm gonna get more of that from Yuzakura family. Like, I I could see this being like I mean, obviously, like they're they're in they're engaged, and I'm sure like a like a uh, a real like maybe a, maybe a romantic relationship will come out of that. I don't know, but like 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 I feel like this is I feel like this is the Nisekoi I wanted almost. Yeah, I definitely think the series is geared toward being more of an action series. Right now is definitely relying on being an action comedy. I definitely think that it's set up its premise in a way that it could just become a full-on battle manga at a certain point. But right now, I think it's striking a good balance in terms of just introducing characters and having fun premises to go off of. And uh, just, I, I do think the action is really interesting and the author draws some really cool panels that even though we don't see too much, like we might breeze by certain things, it leaves an impact for what we do see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. E- even in Poro, like there were one or two spreads that really stood out to me um, that really showed me what this artist was capable of. Um, I feel like there are good action scenes in this so far, but n- nothing that really like really sticks out in my mind just yet. Well, I mean, just the fight between the family and Kyochi in the first chapter is supremely cool and interesting. I like oh, yeah, how for sure, quickly for sure. we get introduced to all the powers, and I do like this, all the action sequences. I thought that was a real supremely memorable sequence, because like just so quickly we get to see so many crazy powers at work we get the lolita girls like string powers and the trash can guy has like these claws out of his trash can and the 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 big guy in the helmet like punches the ground into pieces and there's just a lot of cool sequences like i love when the girl with the drones just sets off all the bombs it's just those are some fun panels and we don't even see the results of that but just like we see the broken drones on the floor and then he's moved on to the next room. That was really cool stuff. And then I just really like all these panels. Like the panel with Kengo disguises Mutsumi attacking Ikeotri is also super cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like these illustrations. I think that these are good, really strong action illustrations, even though we don't have too many prolonged action scenes. What we do have is really distinct and memorable. So it feels just super cool. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of flipping through the first chapter again, and uh, the the Hunter Hunter vibes I I feel like are there, especially in scenes with uh, Kyoichiro moving closer towards Mutsumi, where he's talking about how dangerous the outside world is, and like how he's basically basically going to cut off everything that's quote unquote unnecessary uh, to her protection. That felt like a total Illumi moment for sure. Yeah, I could totally imagine this being something Illumi say to Killua. Yeah, like th- this. This feels like something out of a Togashi manga. This panel in particular. I just think the pacing of panels in this manga is super good. Like the moment where Kyotaro reveals that he's entered the room, and he's sitting on the couch, and no one has noticed that he's already been there, and we just have like the reaction shots of everyone noticing. That he's there. That's such a really impactful moment. It's a super good 
paneling. Again, like the mangaka really knows how to make the pacing of the manga sell the cool moments. Like when the Lolita girl, I don't remember her name. I wish I did, but she, because since she's one of the most interesting ones of the family, but she like pulls Kyochiro by the necktie and lifts him over the air, like that, and then slams him back down on the ground. Just it's just a series of really solid action beats that just flow so well and satisfyingly. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed that too. Um, I yeah, I I think overall, just from just from the two chapters we've read, like I'm really excited to read more of this. Like I, I'm I'm re- like I know I say this a lot, but I really hope this one sticks around. <laughs> It's a really strong start, and I think the premise has a lot of potential. I think the characters are really immediately interesting. It's a really satisfying read so far already, and I think that hopefully with time, it could continue to grow into something real special. So, uh, yeah, I am really excited for this one. Hopefully it finds an audience. I, I, I could see this one getting an audience pretty quickly. Here's hoping you can never tell with these series, series that we really love, like Last Sayuki, where we think, oh man, this has so much promise. They unfortunately don't really hit big, but hopefully this one does. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, But I suppose we should talk about our next series. That's right. Our next series is Mitama Security Spirit Busters. They kind of had to remove the pun of the Japanese title while translating the name, which is Mitama Sekurete. They mentioned in the chapter, but like, it's kind of it's kind of like the translating Yui Kamio's name into English. They kind of missed the pun of the Japanese, where it's like Yui Kamio, wa Yui Kamio, or something. This series comes to us by Surun Hatomune, who previously did a four-volume series for Jump Plus uh, back in, from 2017 to 2018, which ran a, it ran about a year, ended up being four volumes. And now this is their first uh, Shonen Jump weekly Shonen Jump debut. And this series is about a exorcist, basically, who is quite cowardly. He's very scared of ghosts, but he comes across this girl who has a hundred spirits haunting her named Renahaze, who goes to Alter Guy uh, High School, so pun on Poltergeist there. That was pretty so, good, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, this guy's very cowardly. It doesn't seem like he's totally good with his job but he follows the girl because she notices a spirit kind of acting weird it's stretching like it's Achilles tendon and because she noticed the spirit being weird it starts kind of bothering her running around her and so he tries to help but all he does really is like kind of agitate the ghost and make it more dangerous but then eventually he gets scared enough to the point where he starts crying and that kind of transforms him into a more badass guy or at least a guy more capable of using like actual psychic powers and fighting like he enters a battle mode. And then so he start actually does the exorcism. Uh, he kind of does like a bunch of wasteful like flashy moves <laughs> before actually finally shooting the guy. Uh and then 
that pretty much solves the situation. But he returns back to normal, his cowardly self. But basically, he moves in next door to the girl who has these 100 spirits behind her. You know, he's probably going to start his, like, security beat, uh, business outside his new, like, apartment. And now, yeah, he lives next door to the girl with 100 spirits. So that's basically the, the first chapter. And I, I kind of enjoyed it more after talking about it and, like, remembering the chapter than I did actually, like, reading it the first time. It's kind of like... Right now, it's a little bit one joke with this protagonist. Like, he's cowardly. He's a he's a exorcist who's scared of ghosts. And he's really bad at his job. But then when he becomes, like, so scared and starts crying, he becomes badass. But then he also becomes really arrogant and just does a bunch of wasteful flashy moves before actually finally doing the job of exercising the ghosts. But it is kind of, it is quite funny. I, uh, I don't think like the main heroine has too much personality so far outside of like kind of reacting as uh, just a, the straight man to him. But I think it is interesting that she has like a hundred ghosts that are following her. I like the moment where like one of the ghosts is like noticing Matama enter battle mode. And he's like, whoa. So he's the type of psychic who's powerfully via that crying. And then he's, uh, it, that was like a funny moment where, where one of the ghosts actually revealed they have a personality. And then apparently like they have a rigid line system that they're like being very respectful of following. So I think there's something to explore with that. Like, why are these ghosts all lining up behind her? Like, is there something, like, bigger going on with that? And maybe we get to know more of these ghosts that are following her. Maybe some are malicious. Maybe some are actually kind of nice. So that could be kind of fun and interesting. Um, I thought this was pretty funny, actually. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think. Because I, I feel like I, I kind of agree with your point about how, like, you know... I feel like this series so far does kind of run the risk of possibly becoming one note in terms of like, oh, yeah, this guy is that's that's the joke. Like, oh, this guy's an exorcist, but he's scared of ghosts. Isn't that isn't isn't that an oxymoron or whatever you call it? A contradiction. There you go. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I feel like the jokes were varied enough to where, like, I personally, I didn't get tired of the shtick anyway. Like, I I don't know. This this guy seems like a really interesting characters so far and how like how flashy he wants to be like he's co he's constantly you know like you were saying like he's constantly doing these really wasteful movements and like you know when, when he when he first runs into reina like he he starts like just posing and i just i don't know it, it, it yeah he wants <laughs> to be a badass but he's just too much of a cowardly goober to like actually be cool and then when he actually does get his power up and enter his battle mode he's just so over the top that he's he also ruins his ability to be cool just by being because he's so extravagant he becomes lame it's just funny I think I like this series so far because he just he he reminds me so much of Jacko the Galactic Patrolman. Yeah, yeah. Like he, this is this is basically like if Jacko gave up being a patrolman and thought, "I'll give exorcism a try." Like, yeah. like it's just I. There's so many like really good like funny moments in this. Like I, I love when he decides to uh, to follow Reina 
and like he, he he like flips into his car like i i love stupid little moments like that and then um i i did a count it takes him six pages <laughs> for him for him to like finally make the shot and take out the ghost that's attacking him like <laughs> um when i was reading this the first time i was like okay this power up looks kind of interesting and then like he starts waving around his gun and <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like the like the longer it takes, you're just kind of like, boy, when is he gonna do this thing? Like it just it just kind of got funnier. Like the longer he took to actually make his shot, um. So so I fe- I feel like the comedic timing in this is pretty good so far. Like I don't know. Like uh, th- th- this 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 guy seems like an interesting character for me to want to follow week to week. Like I I feel like I talk about a lot on here about how like most gag manga I have a hard time getting into because like I'm not following it weekly but like I think this is the kind of thing I feel comfortable reading week to week and to where I feel like oh well I'm gonna get a laugh out of this every week you know yeah I hope it continues to like vary up the situations and jokes so it's like it's not just all the same thing it's like at first he's cowardly and then he becomes more confident in his battle mode but that he does all these extravagant wasteful posturing and waste time until he actually does his job and does the exorcism but it is funny in this first chapter i like i do like all the crazy poses he does it's just it is so ridiculous and amusing i also love the bit where like he tries he tries shooting at the ghost the first time and he goes oh no they dodged it and it's like (laughs) Like he, he shot in the wrong place. Like I just, yeah. I, I just love little little moments like that. Like this series has a sense of humor that, like, I think really gels with me in particular. And um, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm definitely gonna keep reading it for sure. So yeah, honestly, it does. Like the character of Mitama is very different from from the character in Renee, but kind of the humor of this manga kind of reminds me of Renee. And then the Rena does kind of remind me of Sakura from Renee in terms of being kind of a stoic character who kind of, kind of just reacts matter of factly to the weirdness going on around her, but doesn't like have like these shock face moments or like get really excited or emotional or upset or anything she just kind of blankly reacts at everything that's going on around her and it's like what is this weird thing that's happening so i i kind of do like that dynamic and yeah i i am actually interested in one thing that is kind of not commented on too much in this first chapter but there is a moment where renis hits mitama when he's being like possessed by a ghost and it's not really commented on like why she's able to do that so it's kind of interesting maybe that could be something explored later on that maybe she can actually fight ghosts which would be kind of interesting i agree i felt the same way like i wasn't sure if that was because like oh maybe she has like a hidden potential or something or it was just like or maybe it's just meant to be a gag i don't know but yeah you never know that that could be something I mean, surely there's some reason that's going to be explored as to why there's a hundred ghosts following her. So, but perhaps that's definitely a interesting hook to kind of explore going forward in the series. So, 
Yeah, I, I, so I honestly, I do kind of like the series more after thinking about it and talking about it. And then it does actually, it is actually funnier the second time around going through the chapter and then remembering all the funny stuff. And I did actually, I did enjoy it the first time around, but it, it wasn't like wowed by it. But now I'm like, yeah, you know, I could definitely continue this. It is a sense of humor I jive with. And I do like uh, the dynamic. I do like the, I do like the silliness of it. Um. But I, don't, I, I guess in general, how do we feel about this round of new series? Pretty pretty positive, I'd say, right? Yeah, I like both of them. I think Yosakura Family is definitely the one of the two that I'm super excited about and want to, I hope, really does well. But yeah, I like Thomas Beardbusters, and I do like uh, good comedies. So hopefully, you know, this might be a comedy that sticks around. Mm-hmm. Um... But I guess for anybody who is interested in reading both of these series and checking them out, um, at the time of this recording, uh, the beginning chapters of these, uh, at least until they pass chapter three or four, uh, should be available for free on uh, on Shonen Jump and on Manga Plus. Um, and so, yeah, uh, definitely go check them out while you can, uh, or at least while they're free. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely leave links to uh, both of these series in the show notes for anybody who wants to check them out, because... I, I think it's safe to say we we both like really recommend them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's about it for that, and uh I guess we'll move on to some community shout outs. Lum, I know you had some stuff you wanted to mention before we end the show here. Yeah, I wanted to mention a very interesting piece from Sakugaboro that explores the idea of fragmentation and ambiduction, how we're seeing like more specialized roles like second key animation like key animation supervision assistance like all these strange additional roles to uh credits in anime like which is kind of going back to the fact that anime production is spread so thin right now and because the production is so fast that they have to bring in so many people to handle so many different parts of production that they've kind of fragmented the process to the fact that things have become so specialized to the fact that the collaborative aspect is like becoming so unwieldy because like now it's just there's so much that needs to be done with shows because the pace is so fast like you have overworked kind of the staff and you have to bring on so many different people and because there's so many different people involved in production like communication becomes an issue so productions have become so much messier and uh unwieldy as a result which is why like there are, are a lot of times where shows will not come out looking quite right or like really great animation that is being done for a show isn't really done justice by other departments like visual effects, like compositing. So it's a really interesting piece that kind of explores some of like the underlying problems that are going on with anime production these days and like how that can be addressed, like how communication issues in the industry can be addressed between the different teams and departments working on anime. But also like the like overall important takeaway is like the anime production needs to kind of slow down its pace so that people can do their work without overwork. So we don't have to have like multiple people like directing a single episode or have all these like 
different specialized uh, roles, which are like kind of uh, too many uh, people kind of ultimately like end up weakening the cohesiveness of the the show as a whole. So it's a very interesting piece that kind of, you know, breaks down these, these issues that you, if you've been watching a lot of anime and you have been hearing stories, like you definitely notice some of this stuff sometimes. So I thought it was very valuable and I wanted to link that in the description for sure. And Additionally, I want to link a really good episode. Well, actually, two really cool podcasts. Like I, I want to actually link a uh, episode of the Ask Backwards Anime podcast, which uh, Doctor had on Kendra and Ash to like uh, catch Foxy up to speed on One Piece that got into some really good discussion about uh, some of the successes One Piece has had in you know recent years but also some of its underlying weaknesses that I thought was a very frank discussion very thoughtful and good analysis of the series and I also wanted to link an episode of the MHJ pod that they did a few weeks ago uh, where they kind of just discussed the series as a whole and, and some of their uh, issues in terms of the representations of female characters in the series. Uh, they had on Caitlin from Anime Feminist on for that episode. I thought that was another good dissection of My Hero Academia, its strengths and, again, its weaknesses. So I wanted to link those podcasts because I thought those were two really good discussions that, you know, really took a good critical examination of two of the biggest shonen series running right now so really good podcasts that i uh want people to uh refer to mm-hmm. yeah just to piggyback off of that i've listened to both of those as well uh and uh uh the episode of the ass backwards anime podcast uh i thought that was a really good episode in particular and uh, i also really enjoyed that episode of uh mha pod and uh speaking of the mha pod uh I don't know if this really counts as a community shout out, but I do want to mention that uh, I was actually on an episode of the MHA podcast. Um, unfortunately, Kendra wasn't on that one, but uh, I got to talk with uh, Sophie and James. I basically got to talk about a little bit about myself and my history with My Hero Academia, as well as cover chapter 241 of the manga. I thought that was very fun. Um, definitely by the time this episode of the podcast is out, uh, that will be out there. Uh, you know, for everybody to listen to. So uh, I'll probably link my my episode in particular of that podcast for anybody who's interested in listening. Um, I, I've been I've been listening to that podcast recently. And uh, you know, what? I, I really I really enjoy it. Um, I really enjoy their discussion of my hero academia in general. So uh, we'll definitely be linking to those episodes for sure. Mm-hmm. MHA pod does a good show. And if you want some great analysis of MHA, definitely listen to them. They do great work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your appearance on MHA Pod. But also speaking of uh, podcasts you've been on, I want to. I will also shout out uh, the latest Ask Backwards Anime podcast where you guys talked about Mystery of Mama, which I thought was a really good discussion of the movie. But I also really liked all your uh, discussion of Fujiko in that episode. I thought, uh, you know, you guys like had a really good conversation about her character and her depictions throughout various incarnations in the series. And yeah, I thought that was a really great uh, discussion. So 
yeah, definitely want to recommend that episode too. And also, of course, uh, your guys talking about Enter the Enemy was quite fun as well. Uh, I think you oh, pretty yeah. much hit the nail on the head <laughs> on all the issues of it. Uh, we'll leave links to all the episodes we talked about in the show notes. Uh, go go listen to those, and not just because I'm on them, because uh, you know it's it's a it's a good show. I I legitimately always enjoy listening to both Doctor and Foxy and whoever they happen to have on at any given episode. You know, talk about you know whatever they want to talk about. It's a very free flowing kind of show in that sense. We just kind of talk about whatever. So. So yeah, uh, I feel I feel bad accidentally plugging stuff that I'm on because we haven't gotten to our plugs yet. But I guess uh, I guess um, you know. Uh, speaking of plugs, I think we might as well just do that. Uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter, Animation Revelation, Annie List, wherever there's a Lum Ramiyasha, that's where you can find me. And you can also read my reviews and find my other podcasts, including Lum Squad on all-comic.com. And definitely I've got a couple of new manga reviews uh, coming up. So definitely look forward to those coming out on there. All right. Really looking forward to those. Uh yeah, de- definitely go follow all alum stuff. But uh, as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I host a lot of other podcasts, which you can find at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com slash podcasts. Uh, there you will find links to pretty much everything I do, including Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, uh, One Podcast Reveals, it's a Detective Conan podcast. As well as, uh, you know, uh, stuff like the Poltergeist Report, which is also a part of the Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network. Uh, Doctor and I basically go through all of you, Yuhaka Show. It's his first time going through the show. It's pretty much my third time going through the show because I love you, Yuhaka Show, that much. So, uh, yeah, definitely go listen to that. And I think that's about it for all my stuff. Um, so I guess as for Manga Mavericks and just all of our stuff in general, uh, you can find every episode of our podcast first on all-comic.com, unless you are a backer of our Patreon. Basically, if you, if you subscribe to our $2 tier on Patreon, uh, you get access to uh, early editions of certain episodes of the podcast, depending on when we have those edited. Hopefully, I'm going to have our banana fish discussion, which is coming up soon. Hopefully, uploaded for our two dollar uh, backers. Hopefully, that's that's the plan anyway. Um, if not, um, expect that very soon, at least on the public feed for sure. Um, but yeah, no. Um, I think also as far as our other tiers go, you know, at the five dollar tier. Uh, you get at least one bonus podcast every month. Uh, we have a bunch of different uh, at movies episodes covering such movies as Battle Angel Alita, Captain Marvel, as well as exclusive reviews of stuff like That Time I Got Reincarnated as Yamcha, um, and just a whole bunch of other fun bonus stuff that you can listen to. Um, again, you can find all this at more over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But we're also available on so many other platforms, such as Stitcher and Spotify, and we're, we're basically wherever, wherever you can find podcasts. But uh, as for all comic, you can follow us on Facebook.com slash all.comic, or on Twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, as well as at Tumblr at uh, mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we have a lot of uh, different content up there, such as uh, our different reviews, news pieces, even some exclusive stuff every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything. 
Um, you know, what did you think about these two new jump series? Uh, what did you think about all the news we covered this episode? Uh, what are some manga that you want us to read for the show? Uh, email us anything about manga or the podcast, and we will read them on the show. Uh, again, email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show and just just helps us get our show out there in general amongst the, th- the probably tens of thousands of podcasts on that network. So, yeah, we'd really appreciate it if you had the time to do so. Um, but that's going to be about it for this episode. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, this has been episode 97 of the podcast. We will see you guys next time for episode 98. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.